Hello, and good morning from the great pandemic week two. Um, as we are, as we're starting today, what I would like you to do is be able to uh, picture, even if you have to close your eyes, picture for just a second as we get started, and picture uh, the other people of the class sitting around you and by you. Uh, and in a sense, we are doing this together, though it is one by one. Um, I just want you to get a sense and a picture of all of us still participating in this class together. As we were talking about last time, part of uh, what we were referring back to was uh, Jeremiah speaking to those Israelites that were captive in Babylon. And you remember that his counsel from the Lord to them, to all those in captivity, was this. Build your houses. Live in them. Marry your sons and daughters. Um, and, and call upon him. Because he said, I will hear you because I have for you an expected end. He knew the boundaries of their captivity and when it would cease. But in the meantime, he talked about living their lives, uh, live, going about normally and living uh, in a way that they would on a regular basis do so that they would be uh, continuing to move forward in their lives despite the captivity that was upon them. Uh, uh, Cindy and I yesterday uh, have been meaning to redo our, the kitchen in our in our house. We've been in it for a number of years, and at some point down the line, you have to do the the dreaded uh, refurnish, refurbish, and redo the kitchen. Well, we started to do that, and we planned on doing that, and so we went out and talked to the people at the granite place that will be. Uh, providing the granite for our counters uh, and they're going to be coming in to measure and uh, and then we've got people that are going to come in and and uh, begin to to uh, redo the in the kitchen and life goes on it was something we would have done before it's something we were going to do now and there was because it's part of us living our lives in the way that we'd planned on living our lives, there's a familiarity there and normalcy that that was very comforting to say that regardless of what else is going on in our lives, we can continue to live our life. We can continue to move forward. We're going to build our houses and then we're going to live, the, live in them and that our captivity has an expected end that the Lord knows and in the meantime we will continue to do what we need to do. So our, our, our plan for the moment then is to be able to uh, keep moving forward. We will continue to send out these classes probably through the middle of May. Uh, some of the, we might get a chance to be back together. If we don't, then we will continue to do it this way. Um, so as we uh, as we begin, I want to I want to remind you, uh, kind of kind of pick up where we we left off. You remember that things were going swimmingly for Paul. He has come to Ephesus. 
the, uh, the, the place of the great Artemis temple, uh, one of the great uh, seven ancient wonders of the world, uh, four times larger than the, than the Parthenon. Um, and it's just, it was, uh, it was a, a massive place. It was a tourist attraction. It was a very cosmopolitan place. And unlike anywhere else, Paul was having amazing success. They, were, they had established churches, uh, some of those with uh, the, member, the burning of the magic books. They are burning those up and beginning to follow that there is somebody with greater power than, than they Certainly in some cases, they weren't necessarily giving it up yet. They just thought there was a greater magician. But, but for Paul, the, the hearing the name of Jesus and learning more about Jesus opened doors. And certainly it was causing an effect. Now, we talked last, about, last time about the downside to that, that the writers of Acts had seen, seen nothing but happiness there. And things were going well, and the name of Jesus was being shouted, and things were great, and you get this optimistic glow of everything is wonderful and everything is fantastic. Uh, and yet we know always in retrospect that's not what happens. Uh, you don't mess with, as N.T. Wright has described, you don't mess with the, the dark powers, for they will bite you. They, they will come back. And in, and in Ephesus, they did. So, uh, in a very big way that we'll talk about in a second. But, in order to set the stage, let's go to uh, Acts 19. And we're going to look at verse 20, starting in 23. Um, And we're going to talk about the fact that it, it says that it happened at that time there was a significant commotion about the way, the church For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, made silver replicas of the temple of Artemis, and he brought a significant amount of business to the craftsmen. When they were gathered together with the workers, he said, Men, you know that our wealth comes from this work, and you see and hear that not only Ephesus, but all of Asia. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a large crowd by saying that the crowds, by the gods made by our hands, are not gods. Now, that has two problems that Demetrius is going to outline. One is kind of personal, and the other one, I think, is one that they would resonate uh, all the way across the city. He says, um, there's a danger that our business will fall into disregard. Uh, In other words, he's telling everybody that Artemis is not a god. They will quit buying our things, and certainly that's a problem. But the bigger problem, to, to Demetrius's uh, side just a little here, is this. But also that the temple of the great Artemis will be considered to be nothing, and the goddess whom all Asia and the world worship is about to be brought down. This is a major attack, not just on our business, but on our city, and, and especially, we owe a lot to, the, to Artemis. We're pagans. We believe in Artemis. She protects our business. She protects our home. She provides fertility. Um, this is, uh, you don't mess with her. And, and for all of this, um, 
we need to do something about this. Now, what are they going to do? Well, it says when they were when they heard this, they were filled with wrath. And they cried out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the entire city was filled with commotion. And they ran together into the theater. Apparently there was some meeting going on in the, in the great theater. Um, and they seized Gaius and Archaeus, uh, who are Macedonians. Uh, now Paul wants to enter this public assembly. The disciples wouldn't let him. Um, and, and it's enough of a commotion that the, that the uh, local leaders... Uh, the provincial authorities uh, says tells them don't enter the theater, um, and there. But it says the assembly was confused, and the majority did not understand why they had come together. Now, in order to put this in kind of some perspective, um, I have told the story before that several years ago we took a group uh, to Ephesus. Uh, the magnificent theater that they're talking about is an amphitheater that seats about 20,000. It sits up against the mountainside. It is, uh, it is made of uh, granite and stone. Uh, it is, it's magnificent. And, it's, and the acoustics in it, because the, uh, the theater itself is stone, the, uh, it faces the marketplace and the, and the general... Uh, road and pathway down to the what was then the seaport is there um, the acoustics in it are incredible and we remember bringing a group up in there and we couldn't take everybody up into that to sit in the theater uh, some had to wait kind of down in the marketplace uh, everybody else we took and sat in the theater and and came up with the idea while we were sitting there and people were milling around and we heard the acoustics that this group of uh, Latter-day Saints decided that we needed to sing a hymn in that theater in Ephesus. It was decided uh, that we would sing the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. And I jumped up and faced them and gave them a downbeat and and we started off with a rousing version of the Spirit of God like a fire is burning. Um, brothers and sisters, we filled the, with sound that theater. We filled the marketplace. Uh, those in our group that had not been able to come up into the theater with us were amazed as they sat down in the in the stone marketplace to hear it as if we were right next to them. It was powerful, it was loud, it was enthusiastic, and everybody in the um, in that area, including a large Asian group uh, that were coming there, all stopped and listened to us as we sang loud and strong. Uh, wonderful experience, um, very touching to be singing the song in that place. Um, but we were amazed by the acoustics of that, and we felt like we had had a chance to do something uh, that, that meant a lot to us, and still means uh, a lot to me in this theater. Uh, but trying to recreate what happened there on that day back around 55 AD, uh, uh, we need to see that there is one other thing that happened here. It says that among the crowd, the Jews, 
put forward uh, Alexander, one of their Jews, uh, to motion his hand to try and make a speech to the assembly because now everybody is, is stirred up. But it says that when they heard that he was a Jew, now you get kind of this racial thing happening. When they heard that he was a Jew, they cried out in a single voice for two hours in that place with its acoustics. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, if you look on the, uh, I, I sent along the uh, PowerPoint because I tried to get it, have you understand what was actually happening in Greek. If, if you get that many people, even if, it, the, even if there were only about several thousand in that large amphitheater that holds 20,000, and they are crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You have to picture, uh, and those that study Greek have, have talked about this, how that would be pronounced in Greek and then how that would be, how that would sound in that auditorium. And, and you have to put the emphasis on every other word uh, and then you're going to begin to hear something that would sound like when we would, when you go to a BYU football game, you'll get uh, the four sides of the stadium and they might go B-Y-U Cougars, B-Y-U Cougars. And you just get this sound that rises up from thousands of people all chanting at the same time. Well, picture for two hours uh, while, while the Jews are trying to settle things down and Paul is listening from outside the theater near the walkway. Um, and what they're hearing is great as Artemis of the Ephesians. But in Greek, it comes out to uh, Megas, Artemis, Ephesion, Megas, Artemis, Ephesion, Migas, Artemis, Ephesion, and it goes on for two hours in one voice. Uh, would have been intimidating, would have been impressive, and there would have been no place in all of Ephesus that you would not have heard Migas, Artemis, Ephesion pouring out of that theater. Very impressive moment. Um, finally, it says in verse 35, the city clerk quiets the crowd and says, Men of Ephesus, who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image that fell from the sky? That's the tradition that that uh, great statue in the temple of Artemis had been given by Zeus and had been uh, and descended from the sky. Therefore, because these things are undeniable, you must keep quiet and do nothing rashly. And finally, he says to them, these people didn't do anything bad. If Demetrius and those that have a complaint uh, against someone, have them take him to the courts. Let them bring the charges in that setting. Um, for if you seek other matters, it will have to be done in the legal assembly. Uh, we're in danger of being accused of rioting today. We don't want to stir up the, the Roman guard, uh, that there's a riot going on in Ephesus that everybody can hear. Um, um, for we are in danger of being accused of rioting. There's no reason we can give for the account of this commotion. Uh, after he said this, he dismissed the entire gathering. Um, and certainly, uh, as we as we learned about from uh, Gaius in uh, in Corinth, um, where the Jews are trying to bring up charges against Paul, and Gaius, the uh, Roman procurator, is saying, 
guys, I don't care. <laughs> I, I don't care. Go away. <laughs> this is not a big deal. If you guys have a problem with the Jews, you think the Jews are doing something, take them to court. Don't mess and don't create a riot uh, in our town. We have too much going on here. And it says, uh, after he said this, he dismissed the gathering. Now, um, here is where we go from what we know uh, to what we don't know. Uh, and there's a lot here that we don't know. The book of Acts starts in uh, verse tw or chapter 20, and it says, After the disturbance ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, he encouraged them, and then he departed for Macedonia. Um, we're not sure that that's completely right that that's uh, completely the, the full story. Uh, here's what we know. Here's what we know for sure. If, as we're reading, if you're reading through the Pauline epistles, what you're going to find is that something right about this time, something very painful happened to Paul. Uh, and we don't know what it was. Um, the book of Acts is silent. Um, and because it's, uh, it's silent, um, there is, so there's a lot of mystery that surrounds this moment. Um, now, if we read the letters that he wrote, um, there are clues that seem to abound in the writing. Um, a couple of clues. For instance, uh, 1 Corinthians, with all of its optimism about uh, the resurrection and, and love and all that, is there. But 2 Corinthians is much darker, especially the first half of 1 Corinthians. It's much darker. Uh, that, and that leads us to believe that something has happened between the writing of the two epistles. Um, we know that there were at least four writ letters written from Ephesus to Corinth. Only two have survived. Um, as, as I have listened and tried to read uh, and study from uh, New Testament scholars, here's kind of what the belief is at this point. Uh, most agree at this point that it appears that Paul had a long, painful prison experience uh, at some point in Ephesus. Uh, certainly what we have in Acts so far doesn't suggest that. In fact, things seem to be going along pretty well. It looks like the dark powers struck back. Uh, we know of, of two long prison experiences that Paul has. One is going to be in Caesarea Maritima, just before he goes off to Rome, um, where he's actually able to walk around town and receive visitors, and it's very, and it's he's locked up, but it's not too uh, unpleasant an experience. He's kind of a house prisoner, uh, waiting to be judged by uh, the Roman authorities. The other one happens in Rome, and in Rome again, when he gets there, he's kind of under house arrest, but he can move around. He's actually able to talk to churches. They have a great experience. Things are going well. Uh, neither one of those seem to be uh, a hard experience. This prison experience in Ephesus is different. There's no getting out quickly. 
because he was a Roman citizen, he was able to get out of an overnight stay up in, remember in Philippi, uh, where there was an earthquake and he gets out easily. This one is not so much. Uh, and in a long prison experience in a Roman prison, it would be uh, very painful, it would be uh, very destructive, uh, it, would leave, it would leave somebody permanently emotionally uh, scarred. Uh, from that experience. And we're going to see some of that in the first part of 2 Corinthians. Um, but our, again, our mystery, our challenge is that we are left uh, hearing one side of the, of the problem. It, it's like something has happened, we get to hear half of a converse, phone conversation, we see our side, but we don't hear what's being said on the other side. And because of that, we're having to try and put together as best we can, what happened? And we don't know. We just have Paul's response um, to, to what happened. Um, now, the best way that I can probably try and set the, the stage for what happens here is let's go to something that we're uh, a lot more comfortable with and much more familiar with. Um, and that is Joseph Smith's experience in Liberty Jail. You remember that when, uh, when Joseph is taken to Liberty Jail, uh, his pain and heartache and struggle come from several sources. Uh, remember, first of all, uh, there is the, uh, the hardship of the jail itself. He's in a cold basement, uh, not much food, uh, not much warmth, uh, a cramped situation. Uh, a six-foot man can't stand up straight in this in this place. Um, harsh conditions, sanitary is awful. Uh, the prison experience would be uh, excruciating. Um, on top of that, he is aware that things are happening to his to his members, those that have followed followed him. Far West has fallen. Uh, they are being raped and killed and, and driven across uh, a wintry landscape in the middle of winter, trying to get out of town, uh, trying to get out of the state, uh, not quite sure what might happen to them. Uh, and in fact, the, the Far West project itself, and indeed the entire uh, uh, Zion experiment in Missouri is all collapsing around him. And so he would be left with questions about his own inspiration and that people have followed him right into uh, financial ruin and pain and suffering at his request almost. Um, so he, not only does he have the hardship of the jail, but he also has the hardship of watching things happen uh, to his people that he loves so much. This is made even worse by the fact that he's sitting in this jail due to the betrayal of friends. He is sitting in that jail because there's there's signatures of W.W. W. Phelps and Parley Pratt and um, and uh, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer and people that he loves and cares about. Um, And he's there because of that. And in some ways, for Joseph, as bad as 
the incarceration would be, the betrayal of friends would be worse for him because of his nature and how much he loved people. And to have people that he loved and cared about uh, having signed off writs saying that he was dangerous uh, was almost probably more than he could bear, I think. Um, bad experience, Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail is the closest I believe that we can come to trying to explain 2 Corinthians because Paul it, it appears has had a Liberty Jail experience uh, painful and hard and excruciating uh, certainly with torture but also on top of that word is coming out of Corinth that uh, people are uh, are not trusting him that they're listening to other voices uh, apparently he had what he calls a uh, painful visit to Corinth uh, somewhere during the Ephesian mission uh, that resulted in walking away feeling rejected and people don't trust him and they're, they don't think he's uh, they, they want to get before he can preach they want him to get uh, letters of recommendation from somebody else uh, that uh, he's not very wise um, there's just a variety of reasons and, and the very people that he loved and taught and organized and baptized in Corinth have turned against him. So, not, so on top of this, sitting in a Roman prison experience, um, he also has a sense of betrayal from his friends. So this is. It, it appears uh, that that Paul is having one of those experiences. And in fact, it was a. Uh, General Authority, Orson F. Whitney, uh, who uh, also alludes to this. He says, I perused, not for the first time, the life of Apostle Paul, reading along with the the epistles of St. Paul and the Acts of the Apostles. And Elder Whitney says, I was struck more forcefully than ever with the general similarity between the experiences of that great man that mighty apostle of Jesus Christ and the experiences of another great man, another mighty apostle of the Lord, namely the prophet Joseph Smith. I could almost imagine myself reading the history of the modern prophet while poring over the biography of the ancient apostle. Certainly true. The two are, are there, there's a very similar experience um, that, that is happening. Um, so what exactly is Paul saying in the midst of, of all of this? Well, let's hop over here for uh, just a second and look at Second uh, uh, Corinthians. So if you've got your handy-dandy uh, Bible there, uh, again, I'm going to be reading from the, uh, the Waymont uh, version of it. Uh, you can certainly see the sense if you want to follow along in the King James version, which would be uh, similar in, in some ways uh, and maybe just being said differently. Okay, So remember, 1 Corinthians is filled with uh, things about the resurrection and, and love 
in First Corinthians 13 and and spiritual gifts and loving each other and it's a it's about all of that. Now we, again, we think whatever it was that happened to Paul happens between First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. So now so now let's look in Second uh, Corinthians one. And what he's saying in uh, kind of verses 2 and 3 and 4, he's saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of comfort, who comforts us in all our trials so that we may be able to comfort those who are in trial with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. Um, if we experience trial, he says, it's for your comfort and salvation. Um, um, which you will experience when you, like us, patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. And we and our hope for you is firm, knowing that you share in our sufferings and you will also share in our comfort. Now, verse 8. We're, again, we're listening to one side of the conversation without knowing the event. Verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our trial, which came upon us in Asia, Turkey, that we were weighed down tremendously so that we despaired even for life itself. We had, but we felt we had a sentence of death passed upon us so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in our God who raises the dead who delivered us from such a significant threat of death, and he will deliver us. And we have placed our hope in him that he will yet deliver us. In other words, we're not out of the soup yet. Whatever this was, this, remember the unflagging, ever um, driving, driven Paul, uh, that he can conquer anything and will say anything to anybody and doesn't give two figs what they care about. Now suddenly he's in a place where it's weighing him down tremendously so that we despaired even for life itself. We felt we had had a sentence of death passed upon us so that we would not trust in ourselves. We might have had those kind of experiences where everything just seems so dark and gloomy. We might have some of those feelings uh, maybe even currently of feeling like nothing's going to work and we may die. We may not survive this. That That's so unlike Paul in, in reading the other areas that this sense of uh, despairing for life itself. Uh, there's also, if he's writing this after some period of time in prison, um, Romans perfected the art of torture. Romans perfected the art of drawing out misery as long as it could be uh, and to try and discourage anybody from trying to rise up in any of the provinces. And, and time in a uh, Roman prison seen as a, a threat against the state would have left uh, deep physical scars. In fact, as we will talk about next time, uh, some of those physical scars, he was a Paul was afraid that when the Colossians would see it, uh, it would scare them because it would be so permanent and so ugly looking. So he's carrying physical scars in his body. Um, 
But there's the emotional scars. There's the the post-traumatic stress of dealing with a painful circumstance where you don't know if you're going to live uh, and you're having to hang on and there doesn't seem to be any hope available to you. Um, and and that would for for this for this Paul, uh, I don't know of anything that would affect him more than having his faith in what he's doing and what he can accomplish uh, threatened to the point that he thinks that his life might be over. Um, suddenly, life is more serious, and um, it, it's been said a few times. Again, back speaking about Joseph Smith said a few times that Joseph was not the same person after Liberty Jail that he was before, that there it was a different Joseph that had somehow mellowed and deepened in his faith where he had to reach to the very core of his faith to believe in what he was doing and then to finally uh, make it through that experience that he was forever different. Uh, for instance, we know that there is a uh, shortly after his Liberty Jail experience that he will go to Washington to plead for the saints. Um, but he will also then during that period of time waiting on Congress, he'll go over to, uh, he'll preach a sermon in Philadelphia. And Parley Pratt said that, his, that sermon in Philadelphia was unbelievable and that people stood in rapt attention for a couple of hours. Um, that was not the Joseph before. Joseph always let somebody else preach for him, like Sidney Rigdon. But not after. Afterwards, he spoke for himself, and he always did. There was a, He was a deeper, more powerful prophet after Liberty Jail. The same seems to be true of Paul. With all of his success, um, I believe that the Ephesian trial, probably prison, uh, deepened him and altered him and, uh, and shook him to his core. And he had to really have a sense of, do I really believe what I'm doing? Do I really, can I trust in King Jesus who will get me through this? Um, and he comes out of it much deeper. But there is a uh, number of scholars talk about that there's a difference uh, and when we read the book of uh, Ephesus, you're going to see the difference in there as there was in uh, Galatians and Thessalonians, where it was the front end of his ministries and things were rosy and bright and this could, everything could be done, and there's a depth that comes after this great experience. So he's struggling hard with that. Um, uh, and And remember, part of the struggle... Um, is is how he's being seen and perceived in places like um, Corinth, and he's just so worried about uh, Corinth, um, and and yet he's seeing his own vulnerability. So if we look over at verse four, we get uh, he sees himself. We have this uh, verse seven of chapter four. We have this treasure, the gospel, uh, the belief in Jesus. We have this treasure in clay jars. Think about a clay jar. Uh, he's not talking about a metal jar. We're talking about something very breakable. 
we have this treasure in a clay jar and clay a clay jar also has to be molded on a on a wheel it has to be fired in a kiln uh, to make it strong uh, he's now likening himself to a clay jar uh, to demonstrate that this exceptional power belongs to God and is not from us we are tried in every way he says but not crushed we are perplexed but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed always bearing in our body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus might be manifest in our bodies uh, to go from Paul the lion who stood at the Areopolis and faced down the gray beards there in Athens uh, to him being able to say I am a clay jar and breakable and I despair for life itself um, and and that's why you hear him struggling in verse 16 of, of chapter 4. If we do not lose heart, you almost hear him talking to himself, but even in our phys- even as if our physical self is wasting away, <laughs> wow, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this minor momentary trial is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. For, uh, for we know that if our earthly home, our tent, uh, and I'm not just a clay jar, I'm a tent. We know that this earthly home, our tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a home made not with hands. For in this earthly home we groan because we desire to put on our heavenly dwelling. Listen to him. And if indeed we are putting it on, we are not found to be naked. For we, well, while we are living in a tent, we groan, being burdened, uh, not from a desire to be unclothed, uh, but to be clothed so that the mortal may be swallowed up by life. God prepared us for this very thing and gave us his spirit as a guarantee. This is a man that is suffering. This is a man that's going through hardship. Maybe that he didn't plan on having to... To handle because he'd always felt like God was helping him out of every struggle. Uh, This time there was no ram in the thicket. He was having to go through the pain and heartache and there just didn't seem uh, to be a way out. Um, So he had this combination then of incredible pain coming from his physical Trials that had to be uh, in a Roman prison, unbelievable. Uh, it was made worse by the fact that he had sent some things off to Corinth. He had not been received well in Corinth. He had sent Titus, in fact, to go find out what was going on in Corinth, and Titus hadn't returned. Um, and so it, born down in all of this is a man that is incredibly... Uh, tried in every way and is pain for, and in pain and hurting um, and there uh, and sometimes in our own life it may feel like everything goes well goes wrong at the same time it's like our trials uh, haven't just decided to take a number and wait their turn they all show up <laughs> at the same time um, and and we're able to maybe ha- handle one but we can't handle them all um,
so we may have there I think there's in some small measure we might be able to identify with this Paul that is going through this tremendous trial of pain and whatever whatever that is now for just a moment let's pop back to a, one more time to uh, prophet Joseph Smith the prophet had endured about uh, three months three or four months of solitary dark cold pain experience not having much information about what was going on on the outside in March 1839 uh, Joseph receives a stack of letters uh, that have been held up suddenly he has them he's able to read them and to his eternal joy he finds that his the people still love him they're praying for him some are finding uh, a place to stay in Quincy, Illinois they seem to be gathering together uh, and as bad as things have been there seems to be an uptick but for Joseph just hearing from his friends um, dry, gives him great joy in fact the letter that he sends out at that time he says those have been cooped up in a, in a jail has no idea how powerful the words of a friend are and it was the, those words of friends that just brought hope and joy in the middle of a dark prison and that those words coming from loving friends that care about him it's those it's those letters that will result in the doctrine and covenants in section 121 122 and 123 he writes back with increased vigor and joy and in the midst of uh, oh god where art thou where's the pavilion that cover thy hiding place comes the answer from the lord that says thy friends still stand by thee um, and now and you can make this if you feel like you have the support of loving friends to bear you up and certainly that's true in a very like manner brothers and sisters Paul has the exact same experience somewhere second Corinthians kind of stops and starts it's it's a bit patchy as he's looking at this idea and that idea and he's struggling especially at the first of second Corinthians uh, with his pain and heartache and, and the sentence of death. In fact, elsewhere he's going to say, I fought with wild animals in Ephesus. Uh, we think that is probably more figurative, but certainly there were, there were in, in the Colosseum, there may have been uh, uh, prisoners or slaves fighting with wild animals. His wild animals were probably uh, human devils, if you will. But in the midst of all of that, uh, remember that in the midst of this trial, he's, he sent Titus to Corinth, hoping that he hasn't lost all of them and fearful about uh, what's happening there. Uh, and then what we get this moment, and I believe in my own study, I believe that uh, Titus returns right in the middle of his writings. Um, 
because you're now going to see it. And if you look over to 2 Corinthians 7, you see the moment. Part of what he'd worried about is that in one of his letters after his experience in Corinth, he wrote to them and, and basically called them to repentance. We don't have that letter. He calls it the painful letter. Um, but listen to what happens here. Verse 5, when we had come into Macedonia, uh, our bodies had no rest, but we were in all kinds of danger, fighting without and fear from within. But then he says, but God, verse 6, the one who comforts the grieving comforted us at the arrival of Titus. Titus has returned. What did Titus have to tell him? And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort that he received from you when he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Not only are you back on track, but you still love me. If I made you sad with my letter, I did not regret it, uh, although I did regret it when I saw the letter had made you sad, but only for a short time. Now I rejoice not that you are sad, but you are sad, which led to repentance, for you felt godly sadness, so that you experienced no harm from us. So part of what's bringing him a shaft of light in the darkness, if you will, is this sense of you still love me and you heard my words for you in the right context and it caused you to change your life and repent. Uh, and that brought him the greatest joy. For godly sorrow, verse 10, results in repentance, which leads to salvation. Um, now, how, how much did this how much did this change him verse 13 because of this we are comforted apart from our comfort we rejoiced at the joy of Titus because you all refreshed his spirit for if I have boasted anything to him about you I have not been embarrassed, but just as everything we said to you was true, even so our boasting to Titus, we told him how great you were, even so our boasting to Titus has proved to be true at well. His affection for you is greater, and he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, and I Rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. In the midst um, of all of that, the fact that they have treated him kindly and that they have changed. Uh, if you look at verse chapter 8, verse 16, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same diligence that I have for you. Not, not he only because he accepted the request, but that he is even more eager. He is coming to you of his own volition. Uh, we are sending with him the brother who is famous in spreading the gospel among all the churches. Uh, in other words, 
the, the, the work goes on and Titus is strengthened and he brings good tidings of great joy about what is happening uh, in Corinth. Uh, and I, I, again, to a this would have been cool water to a, uh, a man starving and thirsting in, in prison, uh, I think. Uh, of all the things he could have heard, that would have been uh, the greatest. So, um, with that said, now now he has the strength to kind of push back a, a little bit against some of the things that he had been that had been said about him uh, and the charges that have brought. And he's and what we get now in the last half of Second Corinthians, so different from the first part of Corinthians, for its gloom and darkness and pain and suffering is is the soul of Paul waking up uh, and being able to kind of defend a bit where he has been um, now here's what we think happened uh, and again we're listening to one side of a conversation um, one of the charges that uh, had been brought against Paul. One is that he vacillated. He kept changing his mind about where he was going to go on his journeys. But maybe the one that really cut him to the quick was that there were false apostles, he calls them, that were coming among them in Corinth uh, and putting Paul down. And he was being described as weak and vacillating and foolish. You know, in a in a city as erudite as Corinth, a very kind of down-to-earth, uh, earthy kind of guy like like Paul, might have been seen as kind of foolish, and um, and they kind of, and because he would always try and fit in. Well, even though he was really uh, well educated, but they would have seen what he was saying and doing as foolish by false apostles. Now I want you to hear Paul the lion. <laughs> Here is. Here is the man that then pushes back against all of that. And this is what we're going to get in 2 Corinthians 11. If you look at uh, verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 11, I tell you again, let no one think that I am foolish. Here he comes. But if they do, accept me, even as a fool, that I may even boast a little. Um... Uh, many may boast be, uh, according to human standards I too will boast because you are wise and he says this really tongue in cheek this is where this phrase comes from verse 19 because you are wise you will bear fools gladly for you endure it when somebody makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you uh, if someone strikes you in the face to my own shame, I must say that we too were weak for that. Those same things happened to us. But when, but whatever else someone may dare to boast of, I am speaking foolishly. I dare to boast. So what he's going to say, well, let me tell you what I boast of. And then this is going to say, let, let me just kind of write the book here. Let me at least uh, put on the table uh, what this foolishness has looked, has looked like. Um, and it sounds like some of the, the ones that were attacking were Jewish in nature um, because we get this um, verse 22 
Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. But then he adds, are they servants of Christ? I know, I'm speaking like I'm out of my mind. And then he, then he puts his sacrifice on the table. And I think this would come from that prison place as he looks at the walls around him and then responds. Um, I am these things even more. With more abundant labors. In a greater number of imprisonments, in more severe beatings, facing death more often, and I would pause here to say more often than I almost expected. Verse 24, I received 39 lashes from the Jews on five occasions. It can't be 40 because that was seen as that that would kill somebody. It was 40 minus one so that they would live. I received 39 lashes from the Jews on five occasions. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and left for dead, by the way. Three times I was shipwrecked. And this is even before his final shipwreck in Malta. Three times I was shipwrecked and a night and day I spent in the sea. We don't have that story. I have frequently been on journeys in dangers from rivers from robbers, from my countrymen, from Gentiles, in the city, in the desert, at sea, and from false brothers. I have worked hard and labored. I have passed sleepless nights, been hungry and thirsty, without food many times, and exposed without clothing. Apart from other things, there's the daily burden of anxiety for all the churches. It's by, my greatest pain is worrying about you guys. Apart from all things, there's the daily burden of anxiety for all the churches. And then he asks, and I, and I think him, I can see him stiffening just a little bit. Who is weak? And am I not weak? I'm a clay jar, remember? Who stumbles? And I do not subsequently grow indignant. But then he, he makes the turn. If boasting is necessary, I will boast about the things pertaining to my weakness. <laughs> He's going to boast in his weakness. Um, the, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed for eternity, knows that I am not lying. Um, it is necessary to boast. Though it's not profitable, I will go on to visions and revelations. Now, we don't, uh, the, uh, I want to hold off um, on verse 12, which I think is kind of, in some ways, it's the, it's the climax and it's the crown jewel of Second Corinthians. And it's, it's where he's caught up to the third heaven and he talks about his own weakness. Uh, but in this setting, um, I, I want to kind of leave off there, but I want to point out one other thing. Um, and that is that this 
painful experience for Paul not only deepened his understanding but it, it actually changed his theology a little bit and I think that's part of what our experiences bring to us. It may deepen our understanding of what is actually going on. And, and, and let me just suggest one in which I think, I think this prison experience changed and deepened what Paul thought. Um, he says early in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, I wouldn't have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning those that have died. Don't sorrow for them. But this we say to you by the word of the Lord. We which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not uh, precede them which are asleep. Then we which are alive and, and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds. Let me say that differently. We will be on the earth when Christ comes back. <laughs> I believe we will be on the earth when he returns. So even those that have died will then be able to join us. But his belief at that point was that this, the second coming of the Savior was imminent. And we which are alive and shall remain shall be caught up with them in the clouds. That's what he believes in that, in that initial 1 Thessalonian, which again is, is about uh, three or four years earlier in his writing than what he's writing in 2 Corinthians. Okay, now, if we look in uh, Philemon, and we're going to talk later about uh, the prison letters uh, that come out of there, not just 2 Corinthians. After, after his prison experience in Philemon uh, 1, um, like 20, he says, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether through life or death. To me, to live is Christ, to die is an advantage. And if I'm going to live in the flesh, uh, that means I'll be that will be productive, but I do not know what I prefer. Then 23, I am pressed to decide between the two, having a desire to return and be with Christ, which is far greater. In other words, I don't believe he is coming intimately. In fact, I think I will die before he returns. Because now instead of going up to meet with him in the clouds, now I believe I've seen my own mortality. I'm a clay jar. I'm a tent filled with his glory, but a clay jar nonetheless. I'm very breakable. I'm not going to live to see him return. That belief has changed from one side of the Ephesian experience to the other. Um, I know that I have mentioned in other settings that uh, my pioneer grandfather stood in Nauvoo and Brigham Young promised them that one day that they would they would go off to the Rocky Mountains and then they would return to the center stake, meaning Missouri. And my pioneer grandfather spent all of his days expecting that they were going to go back to Missouri, meaning that it would be the second coming. And that he expected that he would get to see that and that he would be in Missouri to see the Lord return. On his deathbed in 1901, Arza Hinckley remarks, uh, I guess 
that's not going to happen. <laughs> I spent my whole life thinking that we were going back. I guess I'm going to be dying rather than going back. That's one of those things that I think we have in common with the early saints, and not just Paul, but others, was just this, this feeling, this belief that the second coming was imminent and that they were working at that moment for that to happen. Um, and for Paul, then, I don't know what else deepened in his in his belief, but I know you're going to see a difference when we look at his anger and upset in Galatians and all of that. And then you're about to read the book of Ephesians, which is this uh, theological, theologically dense, deep circular that he's writing to all the churches, and you're going to see a much different tone in Ephesians. And then it will culminate in the depth and power that is the book of Romans. Uh, changed, I think, by his prison experience. So, in that regard, and maybe in uh, kind of in the spirit of kind of wrapping things up today, we have experiences, and certainly at the time this is being recorded, we are still kind of under uh, social quarantine with the virus going on. Uh, our lives have been changed. Our circumstances have been affected. We have a generation of missionaries that are coming home whose missions are being curtailed uh, or stopped altogether, not being able to be called or not being able to proselyte. We have a generation here that is going to be permanently affected by the events that we are watching on the news uh, day to day. That's, that's going to affect us. Uh, that changes us. The question is, does it cause us to reach deep into our theological strength and, and come to know more deeply than ever that the Lord is in charge? Um, that there's no scarcity in His spiritual store for blessings and for uh, guidance and direction. Uh, at this time, we are waiting uh, for a, a general conference uh, in two weeks, waiting for counsel and guidance to get us through. I suspect uh, what we will probably hear is that the Lord's in charge and that He loves us and that we just need to continue to trust. So in that sense, uh, I, I think our, our studying of Paul's experience is going to be uh, incredibly helpful in helping us prepare for that. Now, um, one last note before we close. Uh, in, the, in the order of this, as we're preparing for uh, the anniversary of the first vision, uh, I think what we're going to do for next week's class is to take a break from the Apostle Paul uh, for one week uh, and I want to address uh, next week the the first vision. Uh, I realized that a couple of years ago we were able to look at the first vision as we study, studied uh, the Joseph Smith papers and the new writings that are there but I think it behooves us to be able to focus on the first vision 
uh, next weekend in preparation for conference and hopefully bring some new ideas to you that have that have certainly been coming out uh, to get us ready so uh, brothers and sisters I uh, I love you I miss you uh, I see your faces as we prepare this uh, I, I see I, I miss the discussion and the back and forth that we have a chance when uh, when we're going through this and one day we will do this again in person together uh, in the meantime look around in your mind at those of us that sit in the pews on all sides uh, coming together to learn more and to learn and and be strengthened by uh, these experiences in this case a magnificent apostle the apostle Paul I pray that we can have a good week and that we can stay safe and be prepared to uh, get back together, even if it's just virtually, uh, next Sunday. And these things I with you leave with you, and I do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.